Welcome to Block Stars, Ripple's podcast that features leaders in crypto and blockchain to discuss the basics of these technologies, the current landscape, and the real-world problems being solved. I'm your host, Ripple CTO David Schwartz. I am super excited today because I'm joined by Stefan Thomas, early Bitcoiner, founder and CEO of Coil, former Ripple colleague. It's great to have you on Blockstars, Stefan. It's so good to be on. I, we haven't really ever been on an interview together, have we? No, there was one time we were on stage together, but it was just like really casual stuff like how did you get into Bitcoin, really general. It didn't go into any, any details. Well, we'll certainly fix that today. Yeah, that's why I'm so excited. So, so let's talk about before we met. You were an early Bitcoiner. You were involved with uh, Bitcoin JS and We Use Coins. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, so my background has always been like in web development, and so I, you know, kind of grew up making websites, and um, eventually discovered that I could get paid for that. And that's also where sort of some of the trouble started because, um, you know, I was a freelancer. Sometimes payments weren't so, so easy, especially when I was, uh, you know, subcontracting other freelancers in, in, you know, faraway countries. And I had to, you know, get, make sure they got paid and didn't want to pay too much in fees and things like that. That's where a lot of the friction started to happen. And, you know, for a long time, I didn't really think of it as something that could be you know, you can just go write some code and, and fix the financial system, right? The financial system is something that governments work on, that, that banks work on. And so it felt very opaque. And then, you know, what really got me very excited about Bitcoin was the idea that, hey, here's a, an opportunity for a bunch of us geeks to get involved and, and kind of maybe help this problem and make it better. It was the same thing for me. It was this idea of like, this is not an opaque thing that you can't do anything about. This is something that you could just take a clean sheet of paper and say, okay, here's how I would build it. That that was super attractive to me, I imagine. You felt the same way. Yeah, I mean, just, you compare it to the kinds of APIs that you would get from like payment companies at that time. Like, yeah, sure. Like they're going to let you do the normal use cases that they kind of predicted. But um, with Bitcoin, like you could do all kinds of craziness. You could do these scripts, you know, you could do smart contracts. Yeah, it just felt like a whole new world at that time. It was just sort of like, wow, I'd never seen anything like it. So was the Bitcoin white paper specifically a big influence on you? I mean, yeah, you know, obviously, I think, you know, that was sort of the, the thing that started it all, wasn't it? So um, I remember like when we started the Swiss Bitcoin meetup, I think a big influence was Mike Hearn, who was in Switzerland and working for, for Google. And like we started to spend a, a good amount of time together. And like uh, one of the things that I remember very well is, you know, we'd alternate the meetup between Zurich and Geneva. And so every other time we'd have to take the train over to Geneva. And so Mike and I would ride together and we just spent the entire train ride talking everything from like smart contracts to politics, to Bitcoin architecture, to how to validate transactions faster all kinds of stuff. And, and I very much look back fondly to those to this, uh, conversations. That was really what got me even more deeply interested. Is that what got you working on Bitcoin JS or the We Use Coins video? Yeah. So let me, like, let me tell you how that came about. So, you know, I kind of joined the community just as a regular rank and file forum member. Initially, I went to the Bitcoin faucet to get my first, uh, <laughs> you know, Bitcoins or Bit mm -hmm. cents or whatever it was at the time. What was the price of Bitcoin at the time? Or was there one? When I first found out about it, there wasn't one. But what you could do is you could go to Bitcoin OTC, the IRC channel, and then they had an associated website. And you could see what some of the recent OTC trades were. Gotcha. Sorry, continue your story. Yeah, so I got some Bitcoin from the faucet. And I 
played around with it like like most people. I, I got on the test net. I was playing around with the test net as well. And then it really felt like there was a lot of uh, potential behind Bitcoin, but it was this very obscure thing that only crypto nerds knew about, you know, the sort of the people that were already, you know, part of this very, very niche community. And everyone else just didn't really pay attention to it. And um, right around that time, some people from the community got together and they said, like, why don't we make like one of these explainer videos? And that sort of made my ears perk up because a friend of mine, Fabian, he was studying motion graphics and he was kind of finishing up his degree in motion graphics. And we had worked together, you know, we knew each other since we were four years old. We'd worked together in lots of things. And so it just felt like a, a great chance to team up with one of my oldest friends and also do something good for the Bitcoin community by making this video. That was when I started to get like feedback and, and like what was working about Bitcoin and what wasn't working. And one of the biggest things that people complained about was um, kind of having to download the client and then the client had to download the blockchain and it really took take multiple days to before you could start to use it. And that seemed like the biggest uh, you know, usability hurdle. And I had this idea, which at that time was extremely crazy. Like people literally told me I didn't know anything about um, engineering by even proposing it, which was to do uh, cryptography in the browser. And I think it's still challenging to do that today, but like it's gotten a little bit more accepted. Like there are more projects now to do it. Um, but what it allowed you to do is it allowed you to sign Bitcoin transactions locally on your computer without downloading you know, an entire blockchain first. Yeah, I think in the early days, the idea was everybody would just run this monolithic piece of software that did everything, which has an attractive simplicity, but it, it certainly creates an enormous barrier to entry. Yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy to sometimes go back and like, you're right, like that's that's how a lot of us thought about it. And, um, you know, looking back at it now, it seems insane. <laughs> it's just like, because we have the benefit of hindsight, right? We know what how it evolved. I have that same experience with a lot of things. Like I look back at the way I thought back then. I thought, boy, I wish I could just whisper a cup, a sentence into to my previous self, and I would realize. Like the, my favorite example is mining. Everybody just thought, well, everybody would just mine. Like if you had some spare computing power, you'd mine and you could turn it into money. And it's just it's so obvious that some people will be more efficient than others and price them out. It's just it's completely economically naive. It's just that was that didn't become obvious for quite some time. Yeah, and it's hard to sometimes make these like abstract arguments when the reality doesn't match up with it yet. You know, like, you know, when you can just make Bitcoin on your laptop, it's hard to imagine that it would someday be so competitive that you couldn't, right? So anyway, so so we made the website and, you know, that's what, what started to, started me down the track more broadly, actually, you know, how to make Bitcoin ready for the mainstream. And I know this is now somewhat of a cliche, like when is blockchain going to go mainstream? It's like the new, like when is Linux going to, the best of Linux going to take off kind of thing. <laughs> but back then it was sort of like, you know, it was a novel concept to say like, okay, Bitcoin could go mainstream. I think even, I mean, obviously I can't uh, put words in their mouth, but like um, I th I f when I read Satoshi's posts um, from the early days, like it doesn't sound like he thought of this system as something that would go super mainstream at least in in its in that iteration like i think he sort of thought of starting like an industry not so much like oh this is the final word on you know what what blockchain or crypto should be and so for me it was always like well how do we progress on that path how do we get closer to that solution that would actually be mainstream and that's really become like my life story for the last 10 years pretty much is like figuring out what that road looks like and how to progress on it 
My recollection from that time was that the thought was that like new technologies would come out and there would be improvements, but Bitcoin, the system, would adopt them because they would essentially have to be open source. They couldn't be like protected by a patent and, and because the, the movement was so built around openness and transparency. And the idea would be, also somewhat naive, would be that if there were better ideas, then Bitcoin could just adopt them and it could be this sort of growing, evolving system. And I know you and I both experienced some frustration with the sort of inability of Bitcoin to adapt and embrace new technology. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm sure you remember the, the hard fork wish list and the hard fork wish list were, was this wiki page where you could go and like, if you had a good idea for what Bitcoin should do, you just put it on there and, and other people would, would see it. And maybe you'd have some discussion on the forums as well. And, you know, for the most part, that would be it. Like a lot of the ideas um, on that page are still unimplemented. And in fact, most of them are still unimplemented. And um, I worked on on one of one of those hard fork wishlist ideas paid to script hash. And I remember like there was a, a time, I think it was like New Year's of I don't remember which year, it must have been 2010 or 11. And um, we were discussing like different ways to do the 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 new address format and pay to script hash. And there were several different proposals, like Luke, Luke Jr. had a proposal, and then Gavin was working on a proposal. We were trying to figure out which one was the best. And then that process actually didn't take tremendously long. I mean, not longer than any other engineering effort that, that I've been a part of. However, once we felt like we had a pretty good answer, actually rolling it out onto the network took a very long time. And for me as a web developer, that was sort of a, an experience that stood out because you know I was used to you know, pushing new versions with the push of a button. And even like if you're, you know, let's say you want to create your own HTTP header or something, you can pretty much do that locally within your own, you know, world, you know, anytime you want. Like if I want to have my, you know, website have some custom header that my JavaScript sets and my server like processes, I can do that. But with Bitcoin, it was very different. And, and this is a, like what I later, later realized was a general, you know, problem with shared ledgers, regardless of how they're architected, is that if you change anything, everyone has to make that change. Otherwise, the network forks or, you know, it's just, it has to be perfectly synchronized. And so what that does is it changes it from a dynamic where there's a lot of experimentation going on in different parts of the network and people are trying lots of different things to one where it's more like a political process where like you have to be, you have to first convince everyone that your idea is good before it can even be tested. And, you know, that caused a lot of problems. And that I, I looked at the time that it took us to do pay to script hash and roll it out. And I looked at the rest of the hard, hard fork wish list and I just, I, I lost faith. You know, like I was sort of like, we're never going to get through this list. It's going to take 50 years. Yeah. Well, Arthur and I, around that time, were starting with a clean sheet of paper designing what became the XRP ledger. And we had the luxury of being able to take from Bitcoin what we thought was good and build things differently. Uh, is that kind of what attracted you to? That, that work that was going on on the XRP ledger? Wait, this is going to sound like pandering, but like what attracted me to Ripple was the team. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I know this is maybe becoming somewhat of a meme because other people have said the same thing who've, who've joined Ripple, but like, you know, it, that's the truth. Like I, I was in Switzerland. I was kind of doing all this Bitcoin stuff on, in my free time. So I was starting to look for a new job. I just got a, a text message from, from Jed, like, hey, um, you know, starting this new company in the U.S., do you want to be a part of it? And like, just to be clear, like I hadn't interacted with Jed very much. And so it was a little bit out of the blue. And I remember writing back to him 
is it an altcoin question mark? And he responded, yes. And I responded with two words, not interested, period. We got that from a lot of people and for, and for, for reasons that are, you know, not bad reasons. Yeah. I mean, you're kind of looking back, it was just sort of like, I, I was worried about the community kind of splintering too much. Um, you know, I, I, a lot of the alternative currencies were created with like, maybe not the best motives. Like a lot of people were just sort of like, oh, I missed out on the early mining. So l- let me create my own currency. And it's kind of funny to say that now because like that was still so early. If you had bought Bitcoin, you still would have been just fine. <laughs> but uh, but well, you didn't know that at the time, right? Of course, yeah. I mean, like it's, nobody thought it was going to, like the price was going to do what it was going to do. It certainly I didn't. I remember there was a uh, conversation on IRC and I, I, I forget which year we were looking at, but I think it was uh, 2020 and we were debating on whether Bitcoin could reach $100 by 2020. And I just didn't see it being that successful that quickly. Um, uh, or at least, you know, from a price perspective, I didn't see that happening. Anyway, so, so going back to like, how do I, how did I end up at Ripple? And, and basically what happened was that another friend of mine, uh, Jesse Powell, who some may recognize as the CEO of Kraken and also um, having been involved in, in uh, some of the Mt. Gox wind down uh, process and, and doing a really good job there. So uh, he was somebody that I'd worked for as a freelancer. I literally made 50 bucks an hour helping him convert uh, an old forum that he had from one forum software to another, which <laughs> is a whole other story. But, you know, he was maybe the my favorite, and I'm going to throw a lot of people in the bus here, but he was maybe my favorite boss I've ever worked for. He reached out and he said like, hey, you know, Judd told me that you, you were considering a job at Ripple and like, why don't you just come out? You can stay at my, uh, I have an extra apartment in San Francisco, you can stay there, just go meet the team. And I'm sure you'll, like, once you meet them, you'll want to stay. And that was pretty much exactly what happened. Like I came out here, I met Chris, Chris Larson, I met you, David, and very quickly decided like, okay, this was the right move. A, I could get to work on crypto and then I could learn from some of the smartest people I'd ever met up to that point. So so, so how did you feel when you first heard about our approach and how it was different from Bitcoin, specifically like the switch from proof of work to a sort of federated agreement protocol? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I think this goes back to what we were saying earlier about, you know, some of the opinions that we had in those early days now seem so outlandish that I'm actually having trouble um, remembering some of them. Where it's just sort of like, I know exactly. It's just sort of like, really, we believe that that seems wrong. even words and concepts that we still use today had different meanings, like what we meant by blockchain even, like what we thought was important is different. And so it's very hard to put your brain back where that was. But I'm going to ask you to try a, l- a little harder. Well, so I think that the the biggest thing for me was like we talked about the hard fork wish list, and this felt like, if nothing else, kind of skipping ahead into the future a little bit. Like there were a lot of things on the hard fork wish list, like for example, supporting different currencies, faster confirmation times, um, and so on. That that you know, I, I don't know what, which term to use, but like XRP Ledger. I didn't have a good mental framework of all the economics and game theory and everything else that that we develop over the next eight years. But I, I had this sort of very gut feeling of well, you know this seems to be going the right direction because it does implement a lot of things that we wanted to implement in Bitcoin. And if nothing else, we'll have that. You know, if, if everything else fa- fails, at least we have that. And then, of course, like once you start working on it, your your viewpoint evolves and you learn more about what's good, what's not good. And, and obviously, we ended up changing a lot of the things that weren't good and, and uh, doubling down the things that were. So 
yeah, I think it I think it was sort of like just kind of skipping into the future. And keep in mind, like I was ascribing 50 years to the hard fork wish list. So it was like skipping 30 years into the future or 40 years into the future. So it was quite quite exciting. Well, it's nice when you have a zero dollar market cap for an asset and you have zero customers and you can just change things in the code however you want. You can experiment and you know that like if what you do is better, it's going to get into the the first live version because there wasn't a live version yet. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I think a lot of people don't realize. Like, yeah, when I first started working with you guys, first of all, you guys had already been working on it for more than a year, if I remember. Uh, and, and you can correct me on what the exact amount was, but... I think a little bit less, but I'm not positive. Close. Yeah, I think it's thereabouts. And, and it was an insane code base for, for it to be written from scratch in that period of time. Like, it was absolutely insane what, what, the, what you guys pulled off. Definitely the most productive time of my life. That was just the amount of work that we were getting done was just, is just insane. Because, like, it, it, that's the other thing. Like, I, like we, mentioned, we, t- we mentioned the word altcoin. And, like, at that time, all the altcoins were forks of Bitcoin. Like, they were just, like, copies of Bitcoin. I think there was one implemented in Java that was kind of a new implementation, but nothing like nothing like what what ended up being XRP Ledger. Like it was just so much more sophisticated and well thought out compared to anything else that wasn't a fork of of the Bitcoin code base. Well, no one's going to believe you because it's you and me, but uh, but I'll vouch for that that's true as well. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, there's there's a couple more things from that from that time that I want to kind of touch on because I think a lot of people don't think about that or realize there was no live network. We were just still working on the code base and kind of preparing for the launch. And that was also quite different to Bitcoin because Bitcoin wasn't really, like until after the launch, like, you know, you couldn't really be involved. Like it was just Satoshi, if it was one or more people who were kind of building it at that time, maybe showing some, some early review copies to people. But like, it wasn't something that you could really get involved. And so, it was pretty interesting to be involved with something at that kind of an early stage where you can still make these these very fundamental changes. So, yeah, that was super, super interesting. So let's talk about what your job was specifically. I think a lot of people don't know what, what the thinking was when you first joined. Yeah, so, so yeah, there were two specific things that I was hired to, to do at, at uh, Ripple. One was to build a client for Ripple. And the background behind that was... You know, I had done a lot of the work with uh, with Bitcoin in the browser. Like I was the creator of Bitcoin JS, which was the most popular sort of library for doing Bitcoin things in the browser and JavaScript. I had written a re-implementation of Bitcoin in JavaScript. And so I actually went a little crazy with that and, and made it fully mining capable. And, and I mined the testnet blocks with it and things like that. So that was that was like kind of my claim to fame was to be the, the browser, like, crypto guy, you know, um, I, I believe I was the first person who implemented ECDSA in JavaScript, as far as I know. And I spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, different ways that you could kind of progress beyond what, what Bitcoin was doing in terms of smart contracts, this very limited virtual machine or, or yeah, uh, that the Bitcoin had a script interpreter. And so, yeah, that's something that I already had done some work on. And, and when I joined Ripple and once we had the, the client in a good place, that was sort of the first uh, project that I tried to tackle as well. So tell us about the decision not to build smart contract capability um, into the XRP ledger. Yeah, that was a really, really tough decision. First of all, because I had a lot of ego tied up in it and like I would have loved to have uh, seen it in the ledger because I worked on it. 
we love building cool things in and they, and that would have been cool. Like we would have been very receptive if, if you had said like, we've got this really cool way to build smart contracts right into the XRP ledger. We would have been like, yeah, that's awesome. We like building, like we built a decentralized exchange because we thought it was cool. And we built like the community credit features because we thought it was cool. And the decision was no, don't build that into the ledger. Totally. So we built a prototype, right? Um, or a very rough prototype that I coded together. And the way it worked was it was using uh, Google's native client, which was sort of a, a sandbox that Google had developed to run browser plugins. And I figured at the time, like, hey, if, if, you know, if it's good enough to run you know, code on the web, then it might be suitable for this sort of thing. And it had like a really, really strong security model called software fault isolation. And basically the way it worked was they had come up with a subset of x86 that was kind of known to be safe. Like you kind of look at each jump and you look at each bytecode instruction or, or each assembly instruction to make sure that it can't do anything outside of a certain model of what your virtual computer is. It's like can't jump outside of the verified code. It can't uh, jump, like x86 instructions have variable length, so it can't jump into like the middle of an instruction, things like that. It's some really clever tricks to make that all possible. And at the end of the day, what you get is you get this sort of very simple verifier. And what the verifier does is it just checks that whatever code you're about to run fits that model. And then what happened was, you know, Google was starting to to look into making that more portable, and they, they built like a a lot of infrastructure around that. And so I was trying to leverage that. Fun fact, that later become became uh, WebAssembly, you know, together with a, a similar project by Mozilla, which was called ASMJS, which, you know, different approach, but same idea. Like, how do we get the web closer to native performance? They eventually um, joined forces and, and created WebAssembly. And so, you know, at that time, like I was kind of just running some code. One of the problems I ran into early on was the non-determinism. So even though the code couldn't um, break out of the sandbox, um, it could still have non-deterministic results. That's a, that's a huge problem in a consensus protocol because you need honest people to be able to agree on what the smart contract does. And if they can't, then you can't tell who's honest or not. And then like the whole security model breaks down. Yeah, I'm really glad you explained that because I think that you know, that's so, so critical for people to understand. It's like, the entire point of a shared ledger is that everyone ends up with the same copy. And so you have to bit for bit agree on everything. Or you have to trust somebody to be the authority. But the whole point of like it being a public blockchain is not to do that. Right. And so the, 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 as we were working on it, I think we had this like breakthrough, which was essentially to say, you know, the way that uh, consensus worked on XRP Ledger, it actually allowed us to, to run the code uh, you know, on every node, on every validating node, and then come to consensus on the resulting transaction and what that, like the, the resulting change on the ledger. And I, I always thought that that was a really cool little trick because what it does is you still can't have a contract not do what it's supposed to do because the validators are going to run the code that the contract is written in or that the contract, that, the code that makes up the contract. So you can't get it to do anything wrong. You could, in theory, make a contract that is going to result in a lot of not like like con controversial results, where like there's a lot of non-determinism and it constantly comes up with different results on different validators. You could do that, but the only person who would really suffer from that is the contract author or anyone participating in that contract. So there's sort of an incentive not to do that, and it doesn't really have any negative impact, you know, other than the people that that are doing it. And then at the same time, like the 
um, non-determinism that you could get in terms of when transactions arrive and things like that. There's already non-determinism there that you have to deal with. But with the consensus mechanism that XRP Ledger was using, you could deal with that which wasn't necessarily the case with, with uh, proof of work and mining. With proof of work and mining, you couldn't have done that because it's essentially just one validator that chooses what goes into a block. And you don't want people to be able to choose like the minority uh, case of that non-determinism because you can't later verify that that is actually one of the valid outputs, if that makes sense. Right. It's critical in proof of work that everybody who receives a block be able to tell if that block is valid. And if a miner mines a block that they think is valid and other people try to replicate the results of that block and they can't, now they have a problem because their conclusion is the block might be valid. Okay, <laughs> or might not be, there's, there's no way forward. Whereas with the consensus-based ledger, you can tolerate that condition. And as you pointed out, the only people who suffer are the people who chose to create a non-deterministic contract. And the idea is if you abuse the system, you deserve to suffer as long as you can't hurt other people. Yeah, and, and it fulfilled one of our crucial... Uh, or what we felt were, was a crucial design constraint, which was we wanted people to be able to write contracts in programming languages that they're familiar with. And that wasn't entirely just for developer experience, that was uh, also for security. So one of the things that happened with, you know, obviously with the benefit of hindsight, we can we can look at this, you know, with, with Ethereum Virtual Machine and some of the contracts written in it, as well as other smart contracts proposals that, that relied on new programming languages, there were new classes of bugs that were discovered and that, you know, in, in many cases, like cost people tens of millions of dollars and, and losses from hacks and, and other uh, issues like that because it's a new language. And so you make mistakes where you don't even know the class of mistake that you're making beforehand because no one's ever written in that language, this type of software. And so um, you just at a very highly increased risk of, of making a, a mistake like that. So what went wrong with using native client as the XRP Ledger's smart contract system? So one thing we quickly realized was that it was still limited. So we had gotten rid of the limitation that you had to use a weird programming language. That was step one. We had gotten rid of the limitation that you had to uh, make sure everything was deterministic. But we still had the limitation that you couldn't easily interface with external systems. So for example... You know, I was envisioning like maybe you could call an HTTP API or you could call a web service or something like that as part of your contract. But when you kind of think that through, there are a lot of problems that that can cause where, you know, if the service is down or, of course, it can have uh, non-deterministic responses and things like that. And so that got very complicated. But most importantly, like the inputs to the contract were things that were already on that blockchain. And I started to compare this to... Um, stored procedures or, or kind of running code inside of a database where it's like, you know, blockchain, what is a blockchain? It's essentially a database. What is a smart contract? Well, it's essentially code that's running, at least by the, the definition that people were using at that time, it was, it was um, code running inside of your database. And you don't have to be a computer science historian to know that that was a, an approach that was later abandoned. And I think that when you start to think about why it was abandoned, it, it's, it was abandoned for a very good reason, which is, it seems really great to like be able to store your code next to your data and it sort of interacts with each other. But what you end up with is like you end up with different databases. And now you have some code together with some of the data in one database. You have some code with some other data in another database. For these databases to have to communicate with each other, you lose a lot of the benefits that you were getting from having the code next to the data, like the determinism and, and things like that. And so 
what people started to do instead is, you know, sometimes you call it the three-tier architecture where you have your, your backend data store where like it's just data and it's, it's, it's very little business logic associated with it, maybe some access control, but otherwise very limited business logic. And then you have a stateless business logic layer. And, you know, that layer, it can talk to, it consists of these services and they can talk to each other. They can talk to different data stores. And now you have like a lot of flexibility in terms of architecting your application and having it access other applications, talk to other applications, access different data from different sources and so on. And we started to realize that like those same principles still applied and it was actually not the best decision to to try to get all your code to run next to your data. Um, and so I think that was ultimately what led us down that path. That path being Codeus? Well, first of all, that path not adding that complexity to the ledger, because I think one thing that, that you also have to think about is, is adding complexity to a distributed system is not free. You know, if you, again, like I, I don't, I'm not doing this to pick on Ethereum, but they ended up doing exactly what we decided not to do. <laughs> and so it is it's really helpful to be able to look at what actually happened with that and whether our assumptions actually turned out to be correct. And like one of the assumptions we had was like, well, if we add this functionality, then, you know, people will find exploits, which will allow them to either mess with consensus process or slow down transaction processing or do denial of service attacks against the distributed system as a whole. And that can impact not just the people that are using the smart contracts functionality, but everyone who's using that system. And so we might have, you know, banks trying to do payments on the ledger, but because currently somebody created some really convoluted smart contract that's being uh, DDoSed or that's being DOSed with a very complex transaction, I should say, and that's why your payments aren't going through. And we realized that like those trade-offs we were not willing to make. Like we wanted to optimize for security performance and the basic functionality and, you know, smart contracts were an interesting opportunity for the future. But, you know, since we also believed that the better architecture was not to have the code inside of the ledger itself, that seemed like a much better way to go about it um, to basically say, like, we'll pursue that in the future as a separate system, not try to build it into XRP Ledger. Yeah, we, we were we were focused on payments and exchange of value and it just you know, trying to build a system that does everything for everyone, particularly when everyone has to pay the costs of even the features they don't use doesn't doesn't uh, work out so well. So tell us um, how you got to Codius. After working on smart contracts for XRP Ledger and kind of realizing that the architecture that, that would work the best was having the business logic be stateless and then interface with stateful data stores, whether they are blockchains or, or not, frankly, like they could be centralized data stores as well, or some other kind of service and API that you'd want to interface with. Then the next question is, okay, well, what is then the difference between a web service as it exists already versus a smart contract, like a decentralized web service of some kind. And so we started to look into the idea of having these applications that you could spin up that are not blockchains because they're stateless, but they're still distributed and they still might have things like, you know, threshold signatures or multi-signatures to kind of affect changes on the ledgers that, that they're interfacing with, but there are their own systems and they are independent. And so that project and, and, and the implementation of that project and those ideas became Codius. Uh, which then became ILP or led you to? 
what became the inter- ILP being the interledger protocol? Well, it's funny to to think about what happens when you deconstruct something. So when you deconstruct, you know, like you know, again, like I really have to say, like I'm, I, I I have nothing but respect for uh, for Ethereum and the Ethereum developers, but. When you put everything into one monolith, it's very easy to confuse the roles that the different parts of the system play with respect to each other. When you separate them out, that's when the relationships become explicit and you have to think about what those interfaces are and and what they look like. And so one of those examples was when we were working on Codius, well, you know, in a blockchain, it's pretty obvious that you can just have a fee that's destroyed or, or goes to the miners or whatever um, to pay for the cost of, of using the network. But when you have the, the contract runners, the, the, the systems that run the contract uh, code, when they're independent from everything else, well, you can't just assume that somebody has paid a fee on some blockchain. There, there might not be a blockchain involved in this particular use case, you know? And so how do you compensate the verifier who's running this code for the work that they're doing or you know short of that how do you at least prevent people from spamming those uh, validators with infinite numbers of transactions and so that leads you down the path of well you know maybe you just pay for the verifier to run your code and that seems pretty reasonable like that's that's similar to how hosting works like if i want you to host my software i pay you and then you host the software for me and there's no real reason why when you move to a distributed system, that should be any different. But then you start to run into the problem of, well, well, well how do I pay you? And we could have said it's out of band. Um, and that's kind of how it works with hosting. Like in, in hosting, I don't, you know, the, the API call that I make to upload my code is very different from when I go to their website and I put in my credit card information. But what you quickly run into is that when you are uploading code to 10 hosts or 100 hosts, going to 100 websites and putting your credit card information into 100 websites starts to get a little bit silly. Now, of course, you could use a blockchain to pay. And for us at Ripple, it was very tempting to say like, oh, you know, everyone who's going to use CodeYes is just going to send XRP payments to the verifiers and that's how they're going to pay for it. But we we wanted to force ourselves to think of it as, as bigger than that in the sense that Suppose we weren't like. Suppose we wanted to build Codius as a completely neutral system that had nothing to do with any blockchain uh, that we happen to be involved with. How how would we pay those uh, verifiers? And that's what led us down the path to think about like, well, how would a neutral payment protocol? What would a neutral payment protocol look like? And I'll say one more thing before before we get to the next uh, question is, you know, when you think about smart contracts, one of the problems you realize pretty quickly is. In order to trust a contract, you have to review the code. And reviewing the code is costly. And, and you need to be somewhat of an expert. You know, like you know, your non-technical friends are not going to be the ones to, to review a smart contract. They're gonna, just going to take one off the shelf and try to use it. And so, you know, when you have these different uh, systems of record, whether they are blockchains or other types of ledgers, and these different types of assets, that combination, all the different possible combinations of the contracts you might enter into and the different types of assets you might want to enter into those contracts uh, with and um, the different systems that those assets might be tracked on, you get a lot of possible combinations. So you need a lot of, you have a lot of complexity in terms of like what your contracts actually look like. And so one of the ideas that we also had as part of the Codius project was to think about like, well, how do we standardize that side so that I can write a contract about you know, an escrow contract for buying a house. And then as part of that contract that says, and then I pay the 
uh, pay the money into an escrow account and then the escrow account pays the money out to uh, the seller, that description should be agnostic as to what the ledger looks like. And so that was another motivation for why we started looking into kind of neutral payment protocols or payment abstraction layers was that the contracts could be ledger agnostic as well in terms of their code. So somehow you settled on web monetization as the best problem to use that technology to solve. You want to tell us how you got to that? Yeah, I mean, so now we're really jumping ahead. So I'd say like, you know, just to, to kind of put things into the, the chronological order, like I joined uh, Ripple in 2012, started working on smart contracts and, and sort of the Codius project really, the, the most attention that we paid to it was probably 2014, if I remember correctly, 2014, 15. Um, and that's when it started to transition over into Interledger. And then um, we worked on Interledger for quite a long time, several years until about 2018, when it started to feel like the protocols within Interledger and a lot of the design decisions we were revisiting and coming to the same conclusions over and over. And so it felt like more of an adoption problem rather than something we could do a lot more research on. And so once it became an adoption problem, you know, you, we, we kind of already talked about like the things that drove us to start looking into Interledger, right? Like we wanted to have a neutral way to pay for Codius. And so those then became the sort of unique selling points of, of Interledger. Like, what is Interledger good at? Well, it's neutral. That's good. It can handle very small amounts. You know, it can handle cross-border pretty well. And so you start to think about what are use cases that, that match those. I think another one is scalability. Like, you can very easily do billions uh, of transactions. And Coil has already done, I think, 14 billion transactions as of uh, July 2020. And so... You know what? What is the use case that matches that? Well, web monetization is an obvious answer, and and there was a lot of, there were a lot of news already and and things happening like the YouTube demonetization, uh, as they called it, the adpocalypse, and other issues with business models that people were looking at. And so, you know, in the left hand, you have a protocol that's neutral, super scalable, can handle small amounts, and is open. And then in your right hand, you have a lot of issues on the web with how people are monetizing, the fact that they're not open methods, the fact that they are causing privacy issues, like on the ad side with, with tracking, on the subscription side, the fact that I have to create an account everywhere and share my personal details with everybody just to pay them. Those kinds of things started to, to kind of fit uh, very well with each other. And that's how we started to look at web monetization as maybe the first use case for Interledger. I think the thing that bothers me the most is that if I go to a website, they don't necessarily care who I am or want my personal information. But the thing is, if they're going to show me an ad, if they know my age, my gender, where I live, how much money I make, what I'm shopping for, they can make more money on that advertisement. And so they have they, they basically are put in this situation where they have a tremendous financial incentive to gather as much information as me about me as possible. Whereas if I could pay them directly, there would be no reason they would want that information. Totally. I mean, this is sort of the thing where like the, the way that we pay for things on the web is a workaround. It's not, it's not a normal thing. It's, it's, it's one of those things where we're going to look back at it and say like, wow, that's, that was really convoluted. Like imagine if you went to a restaurant and you have a nice meal, a nice dinner, and then it's towards the end of the meal, you're getting ready to leave and you're like, oh no, I need to pay. And the restaurant says like, no, no, we're, you, we're, your money's no good here. You're just going to spend three hours in the kitchen doing the dishes, and then we have some messages from our sponsors. And it's like, that would be a, in the restaurant I'd never, ever go back to. You know, like same thing when people start a business online, you have to come up almost with like two separate ideas. One is a good product, 
And then the other one is some convoluted way to extract money from your customers, whether it's by selling their data or by showing them ads or something else. When like, you know, if I open a restaurant or a grocery store or something like that, I'm not going to worry about my business model. My business model is you pay me for the, the products and services that I provide, you know. And it's really the fact that there wasn't a good native, efficient way to pay for content on the web that made it so that people came up with these workarounds. And so I think we're just kind of, now that we have the technology, unwinding that, um, that problem. Coil isn't really leveraging blockchain or crypto in the classic sense, right? I mean, it's, it's leveraging Interledger? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, I sometimes explain that to people by saying like, hey, if, we are, if Coil is a crypto company, then Uber is an oil company. You know, it's like, it's like we don't make crypto, but that doesn't mean we don't use it when it's useful. It, it, it is a, something that very much fundamentally powers a lot of what we do. But if there was a better alternative out there, we would switch to that in a heartbeat. You know, it just so happens that, you know, yeah, obviously this is a little bit ad here, but, um, you know, we're using XRP to settle all of our transactions because it's very easy to use for that. It's it's what it's designed for. So not surprisingly, it does a pretty good job at it. And so, you know, that's how that's kind of been our approach to crypto at Coil. It's kind of like we have no horse in the race, but we'll use whatever is cheapest and fastest. We're out of time. Stefan and I will continue our conversation on the next episode of Ripple's podcast, Block Stars. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions about this episode or any feedback for new episodes, please reach out to me on Twitter at Joel Katz, J-O-E-L-K-A-T-Z, or to the Ripple team on Twitter at Ripple. See you around the blockchain. Don't miss the rest of our conversation on the next episode.